This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Alright, I'm excited to be here. As Ben said, I was a student here, was it 2017, where we met, um, we had a liberationship, is that what they called it? And then we got married, so you know, if you're a student here, you never know what might happen. But that's not why you're here. And that's not why we're here tonight, but Libri, that, all that to say, Libri is a very special place for, for both of us, so thank you Ben and the the team here for having us out. I'm very excited to talk to you this evening about can beauty save us? That is also a question. Um, basically, this title is a little bit of a bait and switch because you might be thinking I'm talking about a theology of beauty. What I really want to do is just share some music that's meaningful to me and why I think it's meaningful and why you should like it too. But that's basically all we're going to do tonight. So I've got the speaker set up here and we'll walk through that. But of course, let's just address the question first. Get that part out of the way. So can beauty save us? The title, the subtitle is more an accurate title. A guided listening journey in choral music for Holy Week, just to help us to get into the the season that we are about to approach. But beauty is important today. I think more and more these days the church is acknowledging, like maybe a decade ago, two decades ago, we wouldn't worry about it so much. But now we realize that like the medium is the message, right? If something is not credible, it doesn't look good, it's not as credible. So my first slide will show you that if I had this, it would not be as interesting or compelling of a talk. That's my only funny slide. Um, that's my least favorite talk. You know what it is. Thank you. And can you know what this one is? And it's hard to read because the colors are off, right? Yeah, it's um, Yeah, so all that to say, the way that, that things present themselves to you affects how you receive them. And part of my story, which I'll get into later, is that how I received the gospel, the Christian good news, uh, that Jesus, and the, of course, beauty is not what saves us, it's Jesus that saves us, but the way that I received that good news in my life was through music. I grew up in the church, but and I and I learned the gospel. I learned that Jesus died on the cross to save my sins, and if I put my faith in Him, then I would have eternal life. But I didn't really believe that until I heard the same Matthew Passion, and then it was like, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. So that's where we're going this evening. Um, salvation, yeah, salvation doesn't come from pretty things. I'm gonna get off this slide. <laughs> Can't take it anymore. The title comes stealing from Dostoevsky, the idiot, Beauty Will Save the World. Um, we know that salvation doesn't come from beautiful things. We, um, but I, I think we know that Dostoevsky is after something a little bit different here. And this idea that art, beauty, music, nature 
can kind of undo us. They can dismantle us. It can sort of disarm our normal sort of logical linear thinking. Um, while it won't solve our crisis, uh, it won't repair collapsed buildings, but beauty and created things can point us away from ourselves. This is definitely true for me. Points me away from myself and to the beautiful one that ultimately does save. So I think this might be what Paul is getting at here in Philippians 4. He writes this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace be with you. Or I, I like looking at uh, Peterson's The Message Translation because sometimes he gets at a different angle, and he writes it this way. Summing it all up, friends, I say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious. The best, not the worst. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. So what I want to do tonight is just think about some beautiful things and see what God can do with our time. Before we do, before we dive into my story and a few of these pieces, I want to invite you to just turn to a neighbor, or maybe three of you, on the couch. And if anything comes to mind of a time that beauty moved you, a very simple question. It can be art, it can be music, it can be nature, fill in the blank here. Take like 30 seconds and turn to your neighbor. Anything that comes to your mind. Go for it. snow that I realized when I moved to New England you know that verse that's like you will wash me whiter than snow I'm from California I never got that verse and then I stepped outside after fresh snow in the morning and you're just like 
oh, that's very bright. And then I got the verse, right? What else? Say Matthew Passion. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, you too. Well, I'll share a little bit of my story. So I have this, what I call a core memory. I don't know if you have these things where that sort of just etched into my brain. Um, it's a little bit of an ironic memory given where I am today, um, and you'll see in just a moment. In sixth grade, I was asked, I had an assignment, a very simple assignment to share one piece of music that was meaningful to me in front of the class, and this was like everyone had to do it. And I was a very shy and awkward sixth grader, and I didn't really know what to do, but I, I was really moved by Take the A Train, Duke Ellington, a jazz piece. I just loved it. Um, so I got up in front of the class, and I played it, and then I came to talk about it, and I just fumbled. I couldn't come up with anything to say about why I liked this particular piece of music. I, I don't even remember what I said. I kind of blacked out, and was just like, uh, it's cool. I like music. <laughs> and I was really embarrassed. I was very embarrassed. This is a very core memory for me. But I think what I realized as I was reflecting on that before this talk is that that was actually like a moment when I realized that I don't quite have language to describe yeah. music. Like, I don't have words to describe the way that music makes me feel. I'm very easily moved by music. Um, I'm not particularly a wear my heart on my sleeve kind of person, but music gets to me very, very easily and very deeply. Another core memory, fast forward to college, I decided I wanted to study music in college, and part of that was taking piano lessons. So I took private piano lessons. Um, I was a sort of decent pianist, but I was never like piano performance level. But I was working through a piece uh, called uh, a fugue from Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier. Fugues are, if there are musicians, who are musicians in the room here? A few a few of you, kind of. Yeah, kind of. Um, fugues are highly um, structured music in which you have multiple voices weaving together to create a tapestry of sound. They're very um, difficult to execute as a pianist because you have to be responsible for a lot of things happening at the same time. And you need each of those lines to be sort of fluid, like it was one person doing each of those lines and sort of playing them all together. Sometimes they cross and they make these really hard fingering combinations. Very hard. Uh, I was practicing this and I, I began to realize I was struggling through it. And I began to realize that my practice was becoming like prayer, at least the struggle of prayer for me. Like Prayer doesn't always come easily for me. I don't know about you. Um, but then at a certain moment, and this might just be good practice, but there was a moment when I felt everything kind of release and the, the music started to flow, and it was the very transcendent experience. I felt myself almost removed from the moment watching myself and feeling God's very real, tangible presence in my life. I was going through some hard things, as one might do in college, and just felt peace um, and the beauty that came with that. So that was a second moment. The third moment was actually the St. Matthew Passion that Marty mentioned. I moved into the world of choral conducting, so I was singing in a large choir. And um, the Matthew Passion, as I'm going to explain later, is about... Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem and his ascent up Golgotha to the cross. And had this moment again when I just felt like the veil was torn back on what the gospel was in my life. That in that moment, I felt 
and knew that Christ died for me in a more real way than I had ever felt listening to a sermon or reading the Bible even. Um, so these moments in my life have just really like solidified, first of all, that I want to know more about this thing called music. What, why does it do that to me? And how can I share that with other people? And, how can I, and then, of course, these moments turn me towards worship, turn me towards pouring my heart back to God because of what he's done for me. So that's just a very little bit of my story, and now I'm excited to dive into some music uh, listening together. The first piece I want to take us through is from a Spanish Renaissance composer by the name of Tomas Victoria. Um, this kind of music, I, I put the picture of what one of the part books looked like, but um, would have been sung one on a part, um, and this is just one of four parts. So you don't see all the music lined up like you would in modern music. You see just the tenor part, or just the alto part, and then the alto has theirs, and the soprano, and you sing all together. This is similar in style, and it actually precedes the Bach that I was talking about playing on the piano, in that it's polyphonic, so poly-many-phonic voices. So multiple voices, again, weaving together to create this sort of tapestry of sound. The text comes from the book of Lamentations, and it says this, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Attend all ye people and see my sorrow. Now something that that composers can help us do is to interpolate biblical texts together to help us see the bigger picture of God's word and how it unfolds over the course of scripture, over the grand narrative, Genesis to Revelation. So in Holy Week, this this piece, O Vos Omnes, which is simply like, Behold all you people, this is in Latin. Um, in Holy Week would have been sung during the this cycle of, of music called the Tenebrae Responsories. So Tenebrae is a Holy Week service. But Lamentations is originally about the lament over the destruction of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. So we get these two worlds kind of collide and gives us sort of a way to reframe we see Jesus on the cross and lament over Jerusalem precedes the lament that we have over Jesus on the cross. As you listen to it, I want you to listen for a couple things. This kind of music, and most music I would argue, is built around tension and release. So you'll have these moments where it feels very tense, and then it relaxes. Right? A chord that sounds very dissonant, or two notes that sound very distant next to each other, and then they resolve in this very satisfying way. So listen to that. Listen to the text painting, the way that the composer articulates kind of what the text is saying. And I'll have an English translation, so you don't need to know Latin to do that. And then we're going to have some time just to discuss. I like to throw the ball back in your court and just hear, what did, how did the music make you feel? And as you listened, what did you notice? And now there's no wrong answers here, by the way. You might notice, oh, I, I forgot to turn off the lights on my car or something like that. So, so whatever comes to your mind, I'm, I'm actually very curious. So. Um, so let's listen to it together.
So take, again, a minute or two, turn to the people around you, and just talk. What did you hear? What did, how did that music make you feel? What did you notice in the music? Take a couple minutes. discussion what has epiphed what has come forward what did you notice it had a sort of downward feeling yeah yeah can you say more um often between verses i guess you could say Mm -hmm. it would jump up to a sort of higher chord and then progress its way down and also get quieter as it did so and get louder. Yes, yes. It came back up a little bit. Yes. That, that's really good, really good. Sorry for the volume. Is the volume okay? It's great. It's great. Okay, cool. My, my, um, it's, it's tricky because, because modern music is compressed, so you have the dynamic range of, that you, you can make with an instrument, and modern music takes all of that and goes like that. And then takes all of that and goes like that, right? But this kind of music is not compressed, so you get the full dynamic. So the softs are really soft and the louds are really loud. But yeah, yeah but yeah, that's a really good point about the descent, right? This, it's the universal term for sadness. It's like a sigh. Let's see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow. And the descending bass note was in that time period actually a symbol for lament, for grief, right? In the early earliest iterations of opera, there was this descending bass motif that was almost like 
how today we would have, oh, that's the Shire theme. We know that that means the Shire or whatever. <laughs> that da 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 was sorrow. Person, it's like in music, sorrow music. So that's really good. Yeah. What else? Well, it ended with a major key, mm-hmm. which is, I suppose, that you, you talked about tension and resolution. Right. And yet, and yet, I think there's sort of an irony because the words, the words are right. the resolution. Of the words. It doesn't end on a happy note. Yeah, no, that's no. right. And so, whether it's kind of gives the souring person a little sense of hope? I, I, don't, I don't know. It right. was an, an interesting tension. Right. Any musicians out there know the term for that major resolution? Major no, resolution. I wanted to ask. I was like, there has to be a name for that. Yes, so yes. I it's was, a good Jeopardy answer for you. Go, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, so it's called the Picardy Third. It's a term that was, yeah, I don't, I don't know the origin of the term, but, but that turn to major yeah. in a minor key it's called the Picardy Third, and it's, it's it's this sort of hope despite sorrow here, right? It's like pointing to a future hope. So if there's ever like a minor hymn, you'll end with a major key because it's like, oh, yeah, but that's not the end of the story. There's hope coming, so yeah, that's really could, good. You could kind of hear it before they sang it, though. Mm-hmm. Sort of. Like you wanted it to resolve there, yeah. and then it did. Yeah. The major key occurred earlier in the piece too. It wasn't just at the end. That's right. There's all sorts of little major resolutions throughout, and there's the one great major resolution at the end. Yeah. Was there will be a quiz at the end, by the way. Was it always happening with the mail? The mail. It seems like that's where I kept noticing it, which is the my. My. It's my a sorrow. Pronoun, and so it's it's his. Right. Where the hope right. is. Right. Right. That's a really good point, too, actually, I hadn't thought of, because there's a, a verse from Luke where, we'll talk about this later, Jesus turns and says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but for yourselves. Mm-hmm. So that's my sorrow, like Jesus' sorrow, Lamentations becomes Jesus' words. That's a really good point. Yeah, for me, uh, this the subject, the, the scripture, of course, is just sorrow. There's nothing. There's no resolution right. whatsoever. Right. And yet this piece was not heavy. There's a lightness to it, as if the composer knows that in our context these words have have hope on the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that this terrible thing. Yeah. There's something something going on. Yeah. Because there's certainly music that illustrates grief in more of a Psalm eighty eight sense that's yeah. just like it's never gonna get Don't better. Yeah. There is that. I wonder if um, the yeah the hope is also in the attending, like mm-hmm. attend and see, attend all you people. Like it's yeah, I think that is where there's something. Um, no, I'm lacking language. And right, I'm, right. I'm you're you're a <laughs> beautiful like, audience and beautifully <laughs> answering my question. I'm loving the observations that I'm hearing. Um, and Sarah, thank you for what linking that to my. Second, that second, that there were two notes that were right by each other for a period of time. It was like, uh, what was that? A lot of suspensions. A lot of suspensions on the fourth, right? Just two. Yeah, anyway, whatever. 
I like your comment, Sarah, because it leads me to my next slide, which I think is one of the purposes of music, is that it allows us to attend, or in this case, behold, what's happening in front of us, or what's happening in the biblical narrative. So here's way too many verses for you to read. But, um, yeah, some verses that talk about Jesus. Of course, the main one from John 1, Behold the Lamb of God, John pointing to the Christ. Um, from Isaiah, Behold my servant, act wisely. A couple from the Song of Song Solomon. This is speaking about the bridegroom. Right? Behold he comes, behold. So, this is my transition to say what I want to do tonight is to help you sort of attend, notice in the music. I think part of beauty is our ability to notice it. Like, why is that beautiful? So I, I, w- I want to train people to, to see and to listen theologically, not just aesthetically. Like, did I like that? I don't really care about that question. What did you notice in the music? And why? And if you did or didn't like it, why did you like it? Why didn't you like it? I get a lot of comments as a church musician. I didn't like that. I don't care. <laughs> but if you can tell me why, then like we can have a conversation. right? So that moves us to the St. Matthew Passion. Um, this is, again, one of these monumental pieces. If you haven't heard it in its full and you have an opportunity, do try to. Um, it's just... I mean, one of the greatest works of Western classical music. Um, bring a translation, though, because it's in German, so otherwise you'll be lost. A brief overview, a little music history, bear with me. Um, the St. Matthew Passion, composed in 1736 by Bach, uh, is the story of Jesus' suffering on the cross. So passion comes from the Latin passio, which is to suffer or endure. It's where we get the English word patience. Um, it's the genre of a sacred oratorio. And this is an oratorio that takes kind of the world of opera, the dramatic world, and then brings it into the church. Well, not into the church. There would be oratories where these would be performed, a separate area. But I love this genre because it takes like all of the best of a secular composer or secular world and applies it into the context of worship. So one thing that oratorios have that opera doesn't, specifically the passion, opera will often have narration. It's called recitative. It's where the the narrator will kind of sing and narrate the events unfolding. And then there'll be a pause where a soloist will sing an aria. And this is where they kind of pour out their heart. They talk about what has just happened to them and how it makes them feel. And that's the moment when... That's, the, that's what the audience comes for. They want to see that emotion, right? And that's when you throw the roses onto the stage for the, the big arias, right? But in oratorio, we get a third component, which is a hymn that's placed in the middle. So in the St. Matthew Passion, there are tons of hymns interspersed all throughout. And this is where the drama of what's happening in the Passion story, in the Gospel of Matthew in this context is now brought right into the heart of the believer for that day, for that time and place. So you'll have the hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, which we'll hear later. Um, It's done five times throughout uh, the St. Matthew Passion. And it it brings those moments to to the listener's heart, really. Makes them experience the text in a more real, tangible way. Um, So I want to play for us the opening movement... uh, of the St. Matthew Passion. And just to set the scene for you, this is the very, very beginning. 
The piece is for two orchestras and two choirs. So choir on the left, choir on the right, and then a third choir that would be in the back of the room that I'll talk about later. So it's kind of the surround sound effect. Um, I can explain it kind of, but there's a musicologist, Albert Blackwell, who can explain it much better than I can. Um, Shauna, do you want to read this for me? Yes. Inconsolably minor, the music twists a chromatic path upwards over a pedal point in the bass that reiterates the tonic notes 40 times then breaks its compulsive Linton tread to ascend a scale of nearly two octaves. All the while, successive entrances of uppermost melodic voices add to the cumulative sonic weight. Infinitely far from the afflictions of Christ, yes. Nevertheless, Bach's music penetrates this listener's heart with the message of an afflicted Christ sorely tempted, ascending Golgotha, bearing the weight of a fallen world. Thank you. So that's the scene that we are at. I'm going to play it for us once, and then I'm going to kind of unpack it a little bit more so you can see even more what's what's going on in the music. This is uh, about eight minutes of music, but I'm just going to play the first two, two or three minutes um, so you can get a sense of what it sounds like. I'll have some music up here, and then I'll have the text as well.
going on there. But take a couple minutes again and turn to your neighbor and just talk about what you heard. I have a few hints here for you if um, that jogs your memory from the quote earlier. But yeah, take a few minutes to discuss. All right, come on back. How many have heard this piece before? Several people here. Yeah, wonderful. How many first time? First time hearing this. I'm curious from the first time, folks, what did you think? Um, it, it was interesting. It, I, it was hard to track with the words as well as sure. the music. Yeah. But something I noticed about the music, and I think it was more of the tempo that struck me, was it felt like I ended up by the end like almost like matching my breath with the yeah. way of the movement. Oh, yeah. And it, the more that I, the more that I did that, the more that it felt like weeping. Um, and that was like, oh, that's the only three minutes of this. I could not handle this anymore. It, by the way, um, it's three hours long. So. Oh, <laughs> the whole. Cool. Um, no, less that. Um, yeah, but it, it reminded me of this very like bodily and physical thing. Yeah. At the beginning, it kind of almost like Jesus on the road with the cross and uh, like this walking, and then it became breathing, and it was just very physical to me. Yeah. Um, yeah totally. Yeah, that was my first. Yeah, oh, thank you. Yeah, I think that's so true that, like, music is such a physical, like, you you can feel it more than just reading the story. Yeah, you're, like, there. It sort of transports you there. Yeah. Yeah, what else? From anyone. Felt oh, heavy. Heavy. The weight. You feel the weight. Yeah. I was intrigued this isn't quite musical, but it was filled with questions. Yeah. Is that an interesting way? At the start, it's asking questions, which right. reminds me of Jesus himself. Right, and, right. And so it's not laying it down, but it's what, yeah. what, whatever. We'll talk more about the text oh, later, but Where? the double choir component is really unique to this passion. The first choir, which would be on the right hand, your left side, sings this text here and this text. 
and they represent the daughters of Jerusalem, right? Come, daughters, help me lament. So that's choir one. Choir two sings these questions. And it actually represents... The choir two is, is interesting because it can represent kind of the faithful Christian that's entering the story for the first time, right? So it gives voice to us, really. Like, behold, well, who, who are we to behold, right? And then they answer the bridegroom. Behold him, and then we ask, how are we supposed to see this person as a lamb? Behold what? Behold the patience, look where at our guilt. And then this I'll talk about later as well is a, the third choir that comes in. Yeah, so there's a whole lot going on, but we are really invited in that role of choir two. It's interesting, choir two, and I think choir one also sometimes functions, they call it the turba chorus, which is the moments in the passion story when the crowds cry out, crucify. And that also, you know, we can be invited into that as we asked for Jesus to be crucified in our own sin as well. So, yeah, really good. Um, I want to make us aware of a few different things that are ha- that's happening in this story that Bach and the librettist, the person that compiled the text together, they worked together on this. His name was Picander, not Picardy, like the third, Picander. Um, what what he did to bring these different texts together. Because, of course, it uses texts from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's chapters 26 and 27 is the Passion story. But it also interpolates texts from all across Scripture, as well as newly written poetry of his own writing, as well as Lutheran hymns. So that would be the hymns that they would have sung in church. Smack in the middle of this as well. And that's the really cool moment for me. It's like, oh, they're using music of the day right there in that St. Matthew Passion to make it even more meaningful for the worshiper that's listening and engaging with music. But I called I, what I call this, this part of the St. Matthew Passion is a um, not a dialogue, but a trialogue, like three things talking to each other at the same time. So already we have the literal two choruses and then the orchestra in the back of the room. We have this sort of three conversation between three things. But we also have three different typologies of Christ ascending Golgotha, ascending the mountain where he would be crucified. The first, which I think many of us would be familiar with, is this idea of the lamb, this Old Testament sacrifice from the prophet Isaiah that's talked about a lot in the Old Testament. The second typology is, of course, Isaac um, carrying the wood for his own sacrifice from Genesis chapter 22. And this is a nice picture from Caravaggio to show that. And then the third typology of Christ ascending Golgotha is the groom from the Song of Songs and Revelation, the bridegroom. Right? We've heard of that. Maybe you've heard of that as a reference to Christ is the, is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. So there's these three things coming together. Here's some of the passages that I'm talking about. So Genesis 22 says this. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. So we can see as Jesus carries the cross, it's clearly pointing to Isaac, the first sacrifice that wasn't, didn't need to be sacrificed, to Jesus, the fulfillment of that sacrifice. 
from the Song of Songs, a couple of verses. Now, I don't know if these are actually talking about Jesus going up to the cross, right? This is like love poetry, right? But I find it very compelling if you read it through the lens of the Passion, right? I charge you, daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and the hinds of the fields, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he please. The voice of my beloved, this is the bride on her wedding day, right? The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. And then we have Christ ascending, climbing the mountain, climbing Golgotha. And then Song of Psalms chapter 3, go forth, O daughters of Zion. So both of these notice the daughters of Jerusalem connection. And gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding. And of course, Jesus takes on the crown, the crown of thorns for us. And then Isaiah 53, which is probably familiar to many of us. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So Jesus doesn't speak in this opening prologue, this opening movement. He does speak in the Passion narrative, of course. There's a very interesting compositional technique that Bach uses that anytime Jesus speaks, he's surrounded with strings. He's accompanied by strings. All the other uh, characters in the story, they'll have an accompaniment, maybe organ, harpsichord, that kind of thing below. But when Jesus speaks, it's almost like time stops and there's this halo around him with strings. And he says his words, except for the moment that he gives up his spirit. When he dies, Bach removes the strings from there. And you're like, oh, he's he's a man at that moment. And it's quite powerful. It gets me choked up just thinking about it here. (laughs) So there's these three things happening. There's one more thing I want to point out for us before we listen to it again. And that is, um, yeah, these two choirs that I mentioned earlier. But then specifically, and I talked about the two kind of speaking back to each other. But the third choir, which is marked in the score, sopranos in ripieno, which is a term that means a third group of sopranos, not made up of choir one or two. So you can't cheat and just borrow it's a kind of a pain for the, someone putting on producing this music because you need to find a third group of singers. It's hard enough to find two. Um, they might have been, we don't know for sure, uh, boy sopranos. And I, I kind of like thinking that because a boy soprano choir has a much different tone than a female soprano choir. Much more pure, uh, without vibrato, without a mature voice to have the vibrato. And they sing a Lutheran hymn um, oh, not here. It's the next page. This Lutheran chorale, O Lam Gottes Unschuldig, I won't try to say it all. Um, and this, some say, is the German Agnus Dei. Now, the Agnus Dei happens at the moment in the Mass, at the moment of the worship service, when the bread is lifted up in front of the people. Right? That's the music that they would have heard. So when they hear this tune, which I'll point out in a minute, they would suddenly make that connection, right? That Christ going up to the cross is the same thing that we see every Sunday when the priest, the celebrant, lifts up the bread and it's broken for us. So, again, bringing Jesus' time into box time and into our time. These three layers are all happening at the same time. 
And we know that Bach knew this was very important, not only because of how he set this music, but how he literally wrote the score. We have a remarkable record of one of the later versions of the St. Matthew Passion in Bach's hand. So this is it. I think I found it on Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> you can see uh, choir one here, choir two here. This is the who, why. That's the little interjections with the strings. Da, da, da. Um, but the moment when the soprano choir from the back would come in is written right here in red. And you see that red is clearly distinct, set apart from the rest of the score. So it's almost like Bach saying, like, guys, this is the main point here. Mm-hmm. Like, all of this chaos, all of this sort of weaving this tapestry of lament, and it really is a marvelous tapestry of lament, but through all of that, you hear the voice of, I mean, what is the gospel, right? Going back to the text. O innocent Lamb of God, slaughtered on the trunk of the cross, patient at all times, however you were scorned, you have borne all sins. Otherwise, we would have to despair. Have mercy on us, Jesus. So that's like our own voice entering that story and singing basically what I hear as like the gospel hope throughout that suffering. So while we while we mourn, we lament with Jesus, we know that there's a message there that's coming through that suffering. So here's all the text. There's a lot going on in this music. We have verses from Luke 23, the Song of Songs. This is original poetry written by Picander, and this is the Lutheran chorale by Nicholas Decius that they, again, they would have been very familiar with. The tune, by the way, so you can hear it. It's kind of how it starts. I don't know if that's familiar to any kind of us as a hymn today. Maybe if you're a Lutheran, you would know it. (laughs) I'm not Lutheran, so I don't. But I want us to listen to it now all the way through. So this is about eight minutes of music, and you'll hear these themes. When you hear those soprano, I'll, I'll point it out when it comes in.
One of 70-ish movements <laughs> that you're about to listen to right now. Just kidding. <laughs> we don't need to discuss in pairs here, but what did you hear anything different that time you listened? It's kind of relentless. Rel- yeah, that's a really good way to put it. It just insists. And the part that I played before didn't get to that middle section where it's kind of climbing. I hear that as like anxiety. Like it's like it's like insisting that you are beholding. Yeah. There's a part near the middle that we didn't hear it the first time. It was right after we left off. Like because what is a similar bass note just pounding away, but it's but it's. It's more of a major key. There's something else going on there harmonically. Yeah, he goes to the relative major G. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Which is totally a, sort of an echoing of the beginning. Yes. Um, exactly. With a different, yeah, different perspective. 
I've loved working on this because I thought I like understood it, and the more it's the kind of thing where the more you look at it, you're like, wait, oh my gosh, there's even more to it. So that listen, even for me, I noticed at the end. I don't know if you noticed this at the end when the choir was finally singing the last couple lines, the the sopranos, the choirs one and two entered what started to sound more like that, and 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 the text changed from this cry of like, behold whom, to I think. Let me go back here. See him out of love, and these two lines sounded more like this. So it's almost like all of creation came together to say, "Now we can behold together." Mm-hmm. Now that we've seen this, we've lamented and we've heard this choir come in, and now they kind of did sort of the same thing at the end. There, that was very cool. And something that came to mind in the second listening um, at the very beginning, before the choir comes in. I realized, I was like, whoa, I'm imagining uh, scavenger birds circling. Mm. Right? Not like with yeah. visual image. And that, yeah, sent my mind on that path of like, whoa, creation, creation is mourning. Groaning. And humans are joining in Absolutely. here too. Like, this is all, all yeah. of creation. The, the melodies are intertwined, right? So. I see that picture very vividly, yes. Yeah, I didn't realize it until you just played it the second time and and pointed out, you know, where the chorale <clears throat> was, how um, the message would have come across, the, the fact that a chorale was something that they sung at the time, but it was just interspersed with, with the lines of the, I guess, the third choir or the second mm-hmm. chorale, interspersed with the passion with the story of, of um, yeah, Jesus exactly. Which just you know, again brings it, just brings it all together. This is so relevant. This is, this is what we're worshiping. This is what we're doing in church every Sunday when mm-hmm. we're singing this chorale. We're remembering this. Yeah, this and we're bringing that story and our story. Together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Something I noticed that the the genius of putting that hymn over all the other stuff to me is that there's. There's so much dissonance and minor minor progressions and harmonies that are like ooh, jarring suspensions that are result. It's just like thorny, basically, like the whole like all of the other parts. And then that hymn is remarkably simple. Yeah, yeah. The melody is like really simple. Exactly. And yeah. it, it sounds like it's supposed to be sung in a major key, but it's it's the notes are the same, but it's sort of reinterpreted with all this with the exactly. minor underneath it. So exactly. That it's heard in a different context, you can imagine somebody who knows the hymn well and sings it, but uh, hears it in a totally different context. You can sing a melody, change the keys, the melody still works, but it's a totally different right, right. thing happening. Yeah. And uh, I love that because it stands out as being like this very pure and simple statement of mm-hmm. melodic. It just sounds like a, a simple statement. Well, all of that complexity and harshness is going on underneath. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And he used this phrase relative major, relative minor. So that's to say that E minor and G major, two different keys, same notes on the piano. Mm-hmm. It's just that E minor, you start on E and you go up through E, and that gives you a minor scale. But if you start on G, play the same exact notes in succession, you get a major scale. Mm-hmm. So what's happening below is all in E minor, and then what's happening with that choir is in G major. So it, it sort of locks into place. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was the context for which Bach wrote? The Good Friday Vespers service. 
Oh, and I didn't mention this earlier. In the, in the Lutheran tradition at the time, there would have been no music throughout all of Lent. So from the Sunday before Lent all the way through Good Friday, no music. And then you enter with this. <laughs> and it's three hours. <laughs> Buckle up. Here we go. Yeah. So it would have been a very big contrast to, to what they had been currently marinating in, which is nothing, right? Just a, a spoken mass. Yeah. And it was the most, it was sort of the highest holy day, probably even more so than Easter, actually, at the time. By the way, there's a church in Boston, if you ever get the chance, Emmanuel Church in uh, downtown Boston that actually puts on a Bach cantata every Sunday. Um, it's, I think it used to be within the context of the worship service, but then they realized that people really just wanted to come and hear the cantata and not go, which is very sad. <laughs> but they put it at the end now, so you can just show up. <laughs> but it's wonderful. All right, I want to jump ahead. I would love to play you all of it. We don't obviously have time for that tonight. But I want to play you a couple more moments of the St. Matthew Passion. You might know the hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. This is like a Good Friday hymn. And we use it, I would say, like a lot because of Bach, because of his use of it here. Um, it wasn't necessarily the text, O Sacred Head. though so there is, I think there's a tradition, it's like a, a ancient Latin hymn. That is seven verses, and each, or, yeah, seven verses, each speaks about a different part of Jesus's body. So, O sacred toenail or something, I don't know. O sacred side that's pierced. And then the final verse is O sacred head now wounded. So that's just a little bit of information about where that comes from. Um, Bach uses it five times, different texts throughout, at different moments in the story. Again, the hymns are used to bring the believer's perspective into the moment. So the first one I want to show you is the second instance of it. And this is the moment when Peter declares, even if everyone falls away, I will stay with you. Now we know how that goes with Peter, right? The chorale that's sung right after sort of unites us in Peter's sort of attempt. Right? His, he's such an eager disciple that he wants to please Jesus. And I think we, we can very much relate but then we know that we don't always do that um, like we want to. The beginning of it is what I said earlier. It's called the recitative. It's where the narrator, um, they call it the evangelist. This would be like Matthew, right? the, the writer of the gospel, is narrating the story. And then we hear Peter sing. Peter is a bass baritone. Uh, and then we hear Jesus answering him. And you'll hear the halo of string effect. Um, and, then, and then the narrator concludes. And then we go right into the hymn. And you'll hear the character of him. Sorry, I don't have translation, but the German. That's Peter. Jesus. Es 
Character that the congregation, the the hymn portrays, like I'm with you. Yeah. It's very yeah. sturdy. I've got this. Overconfident. Overconfident. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I stand beside you, but don't despise me. And then I don't know if you hear what I hear here, but this turn softer. Yeah. More tender, right? Yeah. I hear that turn as this is now Jesus. I mean, I don't know what Bach intended. I think you could debate it either way, but. Jesus is saying, I, I see that, Peter. I know that you're going to betray me, but when your heart breaks, when your heart becomes mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I will never, I will yeah. never, in my arm, and I'll brace you mm-hmm. in my arms. I like the German word, Todesstoss, just so like visceral, right? Death blow. I think that's what that means. So that's the second instance of the Passion Chorale. I want to play you the final one, which is when Jesus gives up his spirit when he finally dies the uh the hymn that is here same tune different harmonization different character so listen to this one here's the text in translation resolution, right? Each successive instance of that chorale is set in a lower and lower key. So it starts in D minor, which I think, what's that movie? The Saddest Key? Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap, thank you, Ben. I think they're right, actually. Lower, lower, lower. Finally, C major, where it feels almost at 
rest when he dies. And then the strange modulation at the end to E major. It's very, very strange. E major, notice the parallel key to E minor, where we started, right? Anyways. This text is the believer looking to Jesus at his death, saying, at the moment of my death, when I am most full of fear, snatch me from my fears by the strength of your agony and pain. So, in this sense, the St. Matthew Passion is sort of a meditation on the divine suffering. And remember, Christianity is the only religion where God dies. Therefore, the only religion that can truly be with us in our death because God experienced it himself, which still, I'm still learning to understand. And things like this help me. But there's just something very transcendent about that. I, I was also thinking that Jesus in his sign don't depart from me. Right. Can you stay awake? Mm-hmm. Right. Just, that was wrong. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's experienced as a worship leader, I like to think of picking music to teach congregations to sing so that when they eventually reach that moment in life or have a loved one pass, that they will have the language to mourn well. To, to Can you sing this kind of song at a funeral is often what I think when I think about music that choirs, congregations should sing together. You guys have been a great audience. I have one final piece I want to share with you, and that's of Mozart. Um, something a little bit different. It's a, a heavy season. We're in Lent and uh, Holy Week. Of course, we're thinking a lot about death. And Mozart died at a very young age. He was 33, I think, like Jesus. <laughs> um, he wrote Avi Verum Corpus in 1791. It's about the, you know the piece? Uh, it's about Christ on the cross. And he also died in 1791, so later that year. Um, But a fun quote that I found from Karl Barth about Mozart. Karl Barth was a big Mozart fan later in his life. And he wrote this, I am not absolutely sure whether the angels, when they are engaged in the praise of God, play just Bach. (laughs) I am sure, however, that when they are among themselves, they play Mozart. (laughs) And that then, indeed, the dear God also listens to them with special pleasure. (laughs) Which is just beautiful. Um, He also wrote this in a biography he wrote about Mozart. He says, Mozart's music is not, in contrast to that of Bach, a message and not in contrast to that of Beethoven, a personal confession. He does not reveal in his music any doctrine, and certainly not himself. Mozart just does, Mozart does not wish to say anything. He just sings and sounds. Thus he does not force anything on the listener, does not demand that he make any decisions, nor take any positions. He simply leaves him free. Nor does he will to proclaim the praise of God. He just does it. So I thought, what a better way to end a lecture on Can Beauty Save Us than simply listening to Mozart and how he praised God. So this is the Ave Verum Corpus, and again, I have the text and translation here, and this will be our last listen. And you don't have to have a discussion after this one, because I just want you to experience it. This, if you come to my church on Good Friday, we'll be singing this.
Thank you. I hope you enjoyed and learned a little bit on how to listen to this music. Thank you guys for being a great audience. We've kind of had a bit of discussion already, so I don't know how you guys generally do this part after, but happy to stay if there's questions, or I know that if people need to head out, that's fine too. Yeah? Just a quick question. Um, yeah, this is really wonderful. Um, it's not my question, but... Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the first, the first person we listened to... Um, Victoria. Victoria, and then, yeah, the Mozart. Mm-hmm. We're, we're both in Latin, and then Bach was... German. In German. I'm just knowing very little about choral music, classical music, broadly speaking. Like, was it an unusual thing? Well, you got two Catholics and you got a Protestant, so that's probably the easiest way to explain it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Bach would be composing in a German Protestant context, so the language of the people is very important. Victoria was before Protestantism existed, so everything was in Latin. And then Mozart, I think, was Catholic. So writing music for the church. You'd be writing in the language of the church, Latin. Yeah. yeah. Now, how did, was there any way in which the musician and the librettist normally work together? Were there all sorts of ways to work together? It seems to be extraordinary. Did they sit in the same room for hour after hour after hour? Did one do everything first? That's, yeah. All of the above? That's a really good question. I actually don't know the answer to that for Bach and Picander. I would imagine that it would be something like Picander would compile texts together, write the, the parts that he had to write, the new poetry, and then perhaps there would be some back and forth between the composer and librettist. I think that's generally how it works. Yeah, they would definitely collaborate. It's not like, I don't think he would just hand him the full set of text and say, okay, here you go. Yeah, but I, I'm not quite sure how much collaboration there would have been. Fascinating, because it would be very personal. Two people would work something out. Mm-hmm. Right. Not at all how two other people would work right. something Right. And it's too bad not many people know of Picander. Everyone knows of Bach. <laughs> I feel bad for that guy because there was a lot of poetry in that that he wrote and obviously compiled the text together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is a very general question about all, all three of these um, wonderful um, men. Were they, like, were they basically like worship directors and they just wrote incredible pieces and were like, just for a Sunday morning, or were there specific <laughs> parts of their um, job? That, like, was that their job? Yeah, or, like, that's a good question. Do they do things for like concerts? Or? Right, right, right. I don't know. <laughs> so Victoria would be a like composer for the church, mm-hmm. so entirely composing for the church. That was sort of in a time when music was fully funded by the church. Bach, interesting because yes, also composer for the church, but it was more known in his day as an organist like a recital organist, than a composer, actually. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until a couple centuries later that Mendelssohn revived his music. Mm-hmm. That now that's mm-hmm. a lot of the reason why we know it today is because of Mendelssohn. Mm-hmm. But Bach is one of my favorites because he, like um, his, like Martin Luther, was sort of a grumpy man, uh, like has all these like quotes that are berating the priests that were rectors that were in charge of his church. So he has this great quote of like, it came time to Holy Week again, and my wife can probably relate to this. Like, music directors around Holy Week get a little bit grumpy because there's a lot of work to do. It's like, I, they weren't very fond of the music, which is funny. They're not fond of the music, but um, he has this line that he was complaining about the the pastors or priests or whatever not liking, but he, he was going to write it anyways, and, like, they weren't going to like it, but he didn't really care about what they thought. <laughs> so there was that very human element to it. 
And then Mozart, yeah, more known for his sort of chamber music, mm. um, which is to say secular music, uh, instrumental. But later in his life, very much turned deeply religious. So that's like a fascinating part of the story as well. Um, we don't really know what was going on in Mozart's heart, but clearly there was some connection to, to God and to, to the sacrifice of Jesus in order to compose something like that. And then also the rec- Mozart's Requiem as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just rewatched the movie Amadeus recently, mm-hmm. and I just wondered if you know how much of that is really um, yeah. historically accurate. Yeah, <laughs> right. You don't, you don't get a sense of, in that movie, you don't get a sense of Mozart being a person of faith. Or piety, yeah. Piety. Yeah. Um, Right. Yeah. 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 yeah I actually don't. I don't know. I, read, I, I recently read the notes to. I mean, we were listening to Mozart's Requiem at home, and I was reading the notes, and it said that he only wrote a couple of the movements. Right. And then because he died. died. Yep. And then there were notes um, that some of his students. Yep. Finished. Mm-hmm. Was Salieri one of the people that I don't, did that or not? I didn't mention his name. I don't think so. Yeah, there's a couple different versions of the Requiem based on who finished it oh, really? for him. So <laughs> student A, student B, and what have you. Um, some it, people it, like this one over the other one, but yeah. The note also said that one of the, um, you know, the count or something um, actually ordered the Requiem for his wife's funeral, and then he directed it claiming to have as if he composed it. <laughs> it's probably true. Yeah, as far as the Amadeus, I, I actually don't know if that was Mozart's personality or not, but it makes for a good movie. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I, 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 but it bugs me if my movies are about true people. Sure. Uh, if, they're not, if they're not accurate. It yeah. really yeah. bothers me. But you can't help but wonder if someone being so good as, as Mozart was at age five, right, writing uh-huh. symphonies at six and seven, if you wouldn't have that sort of child celebrity thing going on. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. 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 Yeah, Michaela. Um, yeah. The symbolism in Bach of like the forty like yeah. uh, beats and just the parallels of the minor and the major. Is that something we read into it or is that something very intentional? I love reading numerology into that music. Yeah. I don't know if it's accurate. Yeah. But you can't help but wonder about the 40 beats before, right, during the season of Lent, which is 40 days, right? So he's saying, like, hey, here we are, right, in this in this time. And then you ascend, right, at the end of Lent, yeah. But there's Bach has a lot of amazing, like, numerology and um, assigning numbers to notes and creating kind of, like, clues in, like... Um, actually, the his name, B-A-C-H, is, if you put it on the staff, B... B A B A C and then H is actually the German for B flat, which is weird. So B A C H, it creates a cross in the music. So Bach would often write his name into the music in a shape of a cross, right? So he very much was a confessional, like he believed it, and he believed that he was the sinner, and yeah, he would write that. At the beginning of each of his piece, he would write Jesu Yuva, which means Jesus help me. And at the end of his, each of his music, he'd write Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. I just wanted, this is sort of a related question. Um, given this, how many hundreds of years later we're still analyzing the same piece of music, finding new things in it, like how, this may be impossible to answer, but like, 
of the people hearing this for the first time or people coming to this newly composed piece of music, how much of that complexity and multi-layered thing are people really getting? Like, like you said, the hymn would have been a touch point for them because that's the, right. the that would bring to mind the raising of the bread in communion. Yeah, yeah. And um, but you can't help but wonder whether like so much of this complexity is just his own enjoyment of what he's doing, and, and like who who during his day would be like, ah, I saw what you were doing there, Buck, with the yeah. with all those yeah. layers of that, you know. Yeah, like you know what I mean. Like I, I do think it's very interesting. This idea of reception theory, like how is music received? We just recently went to a talk at the seminary on, um, which I wanted to include here, but we ran out of time. Uh, Messian's Quartet for the End of Time, which talk about a piece that you can't quite understand. Um, it's modern in the sense that like you don't go home singing the melody. It's like very <laughs> all over the place, and he uses this. Uh, numeric palindromes and assigns lengths to each of the notes and then you get a palindrome and it feels like time is kind of being suspended Mm -hmm. but you wonder if like he uses bird song he uses all these different compositional techniques you don't hear that unless you're told that Mm -hmm. so yeah it's very interesting to to think how did people originally hear Bach compared to how did we hear it today also Mm -hmm. it probably didn't sound like that's um, the Bach Collegium Japan so that's like a modern performance. Obviously, it's a modern performance because we have a recording. But um, yeah, it would have sounded a little different. And um, I think he has multiple versions because, like, it's just the reality of making music. Like, oh, the oboe player is sick, so they got to write a flute part instead or whatever. Like, you just do with what you have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a sort of broader, a couple broader questions about church music, and I was. Uh, both humored and intrigued by your comment at the beginning of like, I don't care if you like it or not. Like, it's not an aesthetic <laughs> question; it's more theological question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I know lots of people, and I also struggle sometimes to like the music at right. church, right. whether it's because it feels so distant historically sure. or because it feels so shallow lately and not anywhere near <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the substance of what you've shared with us tonight. So I guess I'm wondering both as a as a, a worship pastor and music director like yeah <laughs> how do you deal with that? Right. Right. Aesthetic impulse and in in worshippers right. would be worshippers right. who are like, oh, I don't want to sing it because I don't like it. Yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so there's that. Wait, can, then, I, like, can I just add yeah. because I want to like put alongside uh-huh. this? They didn't sing through Lent. Yeah. Like, they just took music completely out. Yeah. And it, so I'm like, man, we live with like a glut of music. And a glut of sound, and so I'm wondering how much of our uh, we're so shaped by I like it, I don't like it, I like it, yeah. I don't like it, and we're oversaturated with we're oversaturated. Yeah. Okay, so that I have another question. <laughs> um, and I guess along with this is like, why music, Adam? Why, why music when it comes to worship? It's like a meta question. It is a meta question. 
you know, yeah. because I think, um, I mean, I think you think, like, worship is, it's bigger than music, mm-hmm. but music is so central right. to, and historic yeah. for how we have worshipped, mm-hmm. and so I don't want to do away with it, right. but I need it redeemed. <laughs> so, Sorry. Let me say, first, is your, I don't know if you have, your objection is more to the text, or the music, or the performance of it. I think it can be all. It can be any. For sure. Because each one, I think, would would have a different response. Mm -hmm. One thing I would say, and I think you're getting at kind of like the shallowness of contemporary music compared to this. Yes. Now, this wasn't the worship service. Mm -hmm. This was a concerted piece. It was not like this is what they were walking into on a Sunday morning every week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, though it would be nice to have Bach as your organist, um, I don't think it was that extravagant every week. Um, what else was I going to say about that? For me, contemporary music, you need to put on a little bit of a different hat in a sense that you're not going in it to like, learn something about God, maybe? Like, it's not like teaching you theology, right? I mean, it is in a certain way, but... Um, I, I liken it more to... Does anyone know Teze? Yes. It's sort of a meditative, repetitive music. It'll just be like one verse of a song. Mm-hmm. So when I think of contemporary music, maybe from like a vineyard tradition, or even like Hillsong, something more popular, it's much more like music as meditation mm-hmm. than a hymn is music as, like, theology sung by the people. And I actually think we need both. I think we do need both. So I, would, I wouldn't I would say, like, let's get rid of this because it's shallow or, like, it's too, too many few chords, too few words. Like, I think there's a certain beauty in the fact that we can just sing one refrain over and over, and that's how, like, revivals start, right? Like, the music at the Asbury Seminary, the college... It was just college students playing, like, old contemporary music. It's nothing special about it. Mm-hmm. And yet, like, God's spirit moved in that context, you know, and they were able to just keep going. That's a, a fascinating story on its own. But, yeah. Was there another question? Yeah, I mean, thank you. Yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, the other, if you have more thoughts on, like, why is, why is music <laughs> so important? Can I jump in before? Oh, I just want to follow up. This is a discussion we have. I I love Teze for its simplicity. And I dislike contemporary music because it's, like, simplistic. Uh, Like, it's not made for meditation. It's made, to me, what it feels like is for entertainment. um, Commercial play, yeah. Yeah, it's entertainment. And it often feels performed. Or there's ways worship leaders, like... And they're performing and we're sort of just singing yeah singing along but yeah I don't know like I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on like when uh, or advice to people that uh, sing songs that aren't meditative but are to me it's like oh like this it's just this is a simple this is the simple rhyme but there's there's no coherence to these. Yeah, it's certainly less good. It's just sort of stuff thrown together that sounds 
just like, I, I mean, when I think of Bach taking a hymn that would have been known to his first listeners and weaving that through this work of art, and so it's like he's interpreting it back to them. Right. And basically helping them be like, do you know what you're singing? Exactly. You exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you, yeah, do you see instances of that or, oh, like, do question. you have kind of imagination for, to me, I'm like, man, that is the role of the arts right. in the church. Right, right. You mm-hmm. know, to be, to be like, to not just be sort of decorative yeah. on a, a Sunday morning, but to, through art, help I mean, I've always wanted to like write a cantata around in Christ alone. That would be a good example, right? But I haven't done it yet. <laughs> I'm no Bach. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I don't. I don't know if anyone is sort of reappropriating contemporary music necessarily. Um, yeah. There's certainly sacred music, com- contemporary sacred music composers that are doing great things. I'm just not really in that world as much anymore, so I don't know. So much. I know James McMillan comes to mind, mm-hmm. Scottish composer that just like does a lot with just really um, compelling church music. Mm-hmm. But I can't say much more than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you find anyone, send. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, I mean, if this isn't exactly what you're talking about, but something that is helpful <coughs> is, and this is a, something that's been going on for a long time, certainly with like Indelible Grace, and other, like taking older texts sure. that are of value, but that aren't sung very much, maybe because the musical setting originally was awkward, or, or maybe just it's just fallen out of style in the church. Taking an old text, setting it to newer music, and making something that was formerly maybe familiar, or, or old-fashioned, or whatever, um, become fresh again. And, yeah. And, and, um, and that can happen a lot, even, even hymns that are sung today, singing that same text to different music can disrupt right. our kind of familiarity with it. So mm-hmm. that, you know, sometimes we, if we're really familiar with something, it just has no effect on us anymore. It's in one ear, out the other ear. Um, but to set it to different music makes you hear the text in a, in a new light. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really like their stuff. And some, some hymns... I know more the Indelible Grace version than the original version because the original version wasn't very well known. Yeah. So, like, that's really great that they were able to bring that text, that language, back into our contemporary worship yeah. setting. Yeah. Or the melody is really dated, and it's just not the kind of melody anyone will sing again. Like, right. like um, oh, love that will not let me oh, go. Oh, love that will not let me go. Hate, hate the original. Yeah, terrible. Like, it's maybe it was good. Once upon, I don't know, but like some people the, like it. The Indelible Grace one is really singable and like yeah. really compelling. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> And that's sort of an example of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to think that the old folks wrote good hymns and they don't anymore. And I remember hearing a lecture on uh, where the guy said, Charles Wesley wrote something like 6,000 hymns. (laughs) I haven't heard most of them. (laughs) (laughs) But like a solid 200 are great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You write that many, the chances are you're going to. <laughs> 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 it's back in the good day. We 
Char- by the way, black church tradition, Charles Tindley, great African-American hymn writer that wrote hundreds of hymns. I know two of them. Yeah. Yeah. And they're really good. The storm is passing over. That's right. Yes. yes. And, you know, there's other verses than the one you do here. Yeah. 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 That's what Ben just described. That's what his group is doing. Ordinary time. It's wonderful. Yeah. Everybody, go online and... <laughs> Ordinary time. Online. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Mom. But let me, you've written some new things. You've written some of your old new versions of all those that are wonderful. Thank you guys so much for being Thank a good you, audience. Man. Thank you. That's all. Is that all? Yeah. Background. <laughs> 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 <laughs>